Thus, everyone, welcome to the Charvak Podcast. This is your host, Kushal Mehra. It's time for a book discussion. This one was long overdue. I actually was supposed to do it a while ago, but uh, finally we got to discussing it. And today we're going to be discussing the book, The New Idea of India, Individual Rights in a Civilizational State, uh, written by my good friends. A New Idea of India, not the... A New Idea of India. A New Idea of India. By Harsh and Rajiv. Guys, thanks for coming on the podcast. Namaskar. Okay, so I have this rule. Every time I have a book discussion, my first question is always a standard question. And I think it's very important. I want both of you to answer it because you've written it together. So I'll start with uh, Harsh. So why did you decide to write this book, both of you? So what was the process behind, uh, say, chalo, ye book, book hai. Ye book ke likhna. <clears throat> okay, thank you so much, Kushal, for having us. Um, so I think, and Raji, which year was the first time we wrote together and meant? Oh, 09 or 10? I think the SPT oh, calling. Yeah. Actually, 8. 8 or 9. Yeah, 9, okay. 9. So whatever. So for more than a decade, we've been writing uh, columns together on and off. We've written about 50-50 together or so. Um, and then, you know, what happens with columns is they are very, very... More, very, very time-specific, more than books. They're very, very contextual. Um, and, uh, you know, they tend to get lost into the ether, so to speak. Uh, so the idea initially was to have an anthology of our columns um, because we thought we had something approaching some kind of coherent vision for India and it would be nice to put it in one place. And I think we started discussing that around 2016, 17. But then, you know, and then... And forgot about it for a few months and then we realized that actually an anthology of columns would be not that interesting because a lot of the content was five six years old pre-modi and so on and so forth and the numbers the narrative were all looking more and more outdated uh, so then we got together to say let's slightly update the columns uh, which was a bad move bad idea because then then we ended up writing basically a new book um, so what happened is we initially just made a table of content structure we said, that became the skeleton of the book. But then we completely did cosmetic surgery of the book, uh, you know, much more deeper than skin. So it, I would say around 60% of the content is new. Um, yeah, much more like a cosmetic change. Definitely more than half. And then the rest of it is based on a column. We got the appropriate editorial permissions from all the newspapers we wrote. We kind of cited it all together and uh, we updated it. And towards the end, um, it was a race between us and the Modi administration. I mean, who will do more and who will write more? The more we were writing, the more this second term, <laughs> more changes were happening, you know, on the civilizational side, on the economic side. Um, and then, of course, the pandemic happened. Uh, we finished during the pandemic and uh, you can see that in the book, we didn't, we've written about the corona pandemic, but not too much. So, so that's basically how we ended up writing the book. All right, but Rajiv, so here's here's my question to you. So when you write a book with someone else, this is a completely different experience, right? When you're writing a book on your own, it, it's very clear. Okay, you have your own stream of thoughts. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go like this. And you just talk to an editor. So how is it actually co-authoring a book? So how was the experience? for? I mean, obviously, uh, uh, it applies to Harsh also, but I just wanted to know from you. So how was the experience? How would you guys juggle it around, you know, back and forth? No, it was challenging. Uh... Uh, especially because we don't, for the most part of the last 10, 11 years, even though we've had a lot of collaborative work, we've never really been in the same geography, uh, not even the same uh, country most of the time, forget the same city. 
so it was challenging but uh, you know both of us are tech savvy i would say i am more tech savvy a little bit more tech savvy than harsh <laughs> so we <laughs> we use uh, we use different kinds of softwares you use google docs you use evernote uh, you try to sort of keep track of what's happening in the book over the last uh, you know who made which edits uh, what else to add what else to subtract and obviously then nowadays it's not too difficult to get on uh, even before obviously the pandemic it was very easy to sort of collaborate uh, through like video chats through other kinds of like uh, online calls and all even if you're in different countries so collaborating like that was and then we were mostly used to it because of writing columns together so it was not so different in that sense except that obviously the product this time was a much more grander kind of product much more bigger undertaking so it did require more thought i would say than the actual sort of uh act of putting sort of words on paper but just thinking through uh what should we talk about how should it be structured i would say that's what took probably a lot of time and uh, and even writing together frankly let me give a different kind of analogy so you know everyone especially in our generation knows about the sachin desert storm innings right yeah yeah so you remember that innings when tendulkar was batting and lakshman was at the other end so sometimes it works like that sometimes you know one writer is sort of on a roll and the other guy is doing a kind of a, a slightly lesser contribution and sometimes uh, it switches so so uh, but 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 given that we both have a certain sort of alignment in our views ideas uh, given that we've worked so much over the years it was it was frankly not that hard to pull off but cool so now let's jump, jump into the book so i so i'll go to you harsh now so so harsh you guys have a sub so obviously the talk, the chapter is india that is bharat but inside that on page 18 you you have written something called indian exceptionalism now what is indian exceptionalism as it is it an offshoot of some sort of inspiration from american exceptionalism at a conceptual level as in just like how america has this concept of american exceptionalism so what did you guys intend to portray when you were talking about uh, indian exceptionalism so i think there are a couple of aspects i think we initially in that section started off in jest by saying all people have their own identities and we take digs at the national or civilizational identity of various countries I mean, with and a lot of that, that part is actually one of the favorite parts uh, for me in the book. Yeah. Uh, I think it's beautiful. Yeah, yeah, we like had a couple of paragraphs of just out of complete respect for all the countries, but we just took a lot of digs. But then it became serious after that when we said that okay, well, you know, of course the term exceptionalism with a country's name has been made famous by the phrase American exceptionalism. Uh, to that extent, yes, you can say that. But basically, I think Indian exceptionalism is defined by the word dharma. um and you know like if if somebody would say what is the one word that would define american exceptionalism uh you know somebody would respond liberty or freedom and that's the one word which is part of the american creed so to speak of course there are many nuances and many many a slip between the cup and the lip when you get to the reality so we thought that what is it that actually makes india special and india is the only uh unique surviving Kind of a non-Abrahamic civilization. Uh, you can say China, but then you know China is under the Communist Party now, and the Communist Party communism is in a way a fourth Abrahamic religion. Um, and there are there are all kinds of. 
I mean, I don't want to be too glib about it. The uh, Chinese religion has made a comeback of sorts, but India is one which has had an unbroken civilizational lineage for thousands of years. And you know, when the Chinese speak about their civilizational lineage, they speak more about their state. They speak more about their empires. Uh, whereas the Indian is, and it's a unique civilizational influence in terms of dharma because it is syncretic. Okay, there is a tendency to actually absorb, assimilate, and not have a very large ego and occasionally change yourself as well. And geographically also that made sense. If you take out the Americas, the so-called new world, India is actually right in the middle of the old world. You know, Africa, Europe, East Asia, Australasia, Southeast Asia, India is right in the middle of just the east of Middle East. So India has had influences in, in racial terms and ethnic terms and ideational terms and therefore influences have also gone back. So it's, I think the in Indian main idea is dharma where it's very difficult to translate. We try to uh, quote a few experts in the book. But I think Indian exceptionalism is basically dharma which really for such a large civilizational entity sets it apart from everybody else. And if we are to be a Vishwa guru of some sort going forward, then that has to be a key part of our creed. Yeah, so Rajiv, but uh, if we, we want to be uh, some sort of a world leader, or let's say if we want to aspire to be thought leaders, I don't know about ec economic leaders at today's position, but uh, let me give you an analogy, Rajiv. So if we look around what's happening in the world today, so it's very interesting. So the West went into a secular uh, route, right? The West kept on secularizing, kept on secularizing, and the West kept on becoming godless. Now, the more godless, yeah, it's funny, it's coming from me, the Charvak. <laughs> the more godless the West becomes, the more funny the West seems to be becoming. As in, I mean, uh, we always used to think that religion is a pain in the butt and, you know, we need to have less religion in our life. And we kind of got rid of the old meme of religion and what we seem to be having today in the West is this comeback of some weird sort of a new religion of wokeism. Now, when we talk about Indian exceptionalism, how does an Indian exceptionalism counter this kind of a pushback? Did you guys actually think about something of that sort, considering what is happening around the world where we look? Because American exceptionalism is a thing of the past now. American wokeism is the new American exceptionalism. No, so actually, uh, on that point of this new atheist type of movement uh, in the West, uh, you know, I think uh, Atal Bihari Vajpayee had said it, said it best more than 30 years ago, where he said that there is also Nastikta. Opposite, opposite. Uh, uh, yeah, sorry, sorry. Nastikta may be Astikta. And uh, he very evocatively said that the question is not that what kind of thing is in what he said that this thing is still in the Nastik, that there is no faith in anyone. The faith is not that there is no faith in anyone. So he was talking about Pula Deshpande, the Maharashtrian writer. It was at an event with, in Pune with uh, Pula Deshpande and he was talking about uh, atheism in that sense. It was, it was a tribute uh, event to Savarkar. So, so when, when you say, uh, I mean, the, the wave that was seen there or that is, is being seen there, Again, it flows out from the Abrahamic sort of origins or other Abrahamic domination uh, in that uh, region. Whereas uh, what we've had in India is something very different. Uh, we've always been 
you know the name of this podcast is charwak podcast there have always been strains of kind of agnosticism atheism uh, you know non believing whatever you whichever way, shape and form you call it in in the hindu way so so uh, i think uh, that that makes all the difference in the kind of civilizational world view of india versus the west or of some of the western nations so, so would you guys be uh, of the thought that their indian exceptionalism would be the indian plurality no i think pluralism absolutely is a key aspect of indian exceptionalism but it's not it's it's a it's a pluralism that's not forced it's not a pluralism that is so organic you don't have to think about it i mean it's not like somebody said acha aaj mujhe uth ke pluralist hona hai you know that's the, because because if if somebody else is worshiping in in certain way or not worshiping it does not even cross our minds that that person is damned because of what he or she believes or does not believe right so so that it the idea of you know the land of being seekers and not believers per se or on the other hand the I, the land the land of theopraxy theopraxy not theology in the sense you have rituals you have discipline in a certain way but it's not so much what you believe and that in a way pluralism is so intrinsic because if you look at any god like ganesh right he has a different family history in south india and a different family history in north india he has different names hmm. very important gods and religious figures become an incarnation or avatar of some larger bigger earlier god so and then you absorb so called tribal gods you absorb uh, gods in forms of men women animals and th- and it has been happening almost organically now of course it's not happened automatically i think our rishis our gurus our dharm gurus have somebody must have done it deliberately and even if you read the rigveda i think towards the end they say you know we all the tribes coming together after the battle of 10 kings and there is an element of how do we bring people together without forcing that view onto somebody else so i think that is and if you think about it that has been true pre in a in a certain pre abrahamic sense throughout the world but what india did uniquely was it added a layer of philosophy over it it added a layer of metaphysics over it so it wasn't just so called low paganism below that that could be part of it but there is an element which is deliberately put over it that said how can we all come together and synthesize and i think that's happened this been happening for thousands of years i mean some people say that um there in the indus valley seals one of the god one of the seals found looks like rudra or shiva uh, some people disagree some people agree but the idea is you know the so called aryan dravidian debate about which kushal you know much better than i do because you've done an entire series on it but there might be some pre vedic gods as well which have been then incorporated in the vedic pantheon then we had the puranas then we had the bhakti movements every few centuries there it does, it's not a wholesale replacement but there is something new that gets added and i think that is so so effortless in a certain way i mean at least in retrospect it looks effortless i mean if you look at the smarta tradition the smarta tradition is about you know there are five or six gods and you say they're all equal you might have a central god and this was deliberately done by us by a by a series of brahman communities who said who actually wanted to reduce sectarian uh tensions within india uh, so i think i think pluralism absolutely is very important to the indian exceptionalism and indian identity so rajiv would no in that sense you know the, the indian mind you know if 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 this kind of a question is posed ki kya ye ho sakta hai to koi bolega ha ho sakta hai then someone says what about that to 
कोई बोलेगा हाँ वो भी हो सकता है यू नो दिसन एंडेड ओपन सोर्स अप्रोच ऑलमोस्ट विच इज विच इज वेरी डिफरेंट राइट फ्रॉम वॉट वी सी इन अदर काइंड ऑफ कंट्रीज अदर काइंड ऑफ सिविलाइजेशन पॉइंट राइट सो people often confuse indian pluralism with multiculturalism there is a difference between multiculturalism and pluralism and also like rajiv just said right in our, in our in our philosophy we've had this concept of ye bhi chalta hai wo bhi chalta hai magar sab kuch nahi chalta hai so we are not relativists we have a moral base and uh, so at the end of the day i guess when we are talking about indian exceptionalism we'll have to nail it down to that fine line where uh, even mahavir With his anekantvaj said, "Yes, siyadasti, 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 nasti, but there is a truth." So even Mahavir said, "I'm not a moral relativist at at a level. I can stretch it, but I will say there is a standard line." Yeah, go ahead. No, Kushal, I fully agree with what you've just said. See, uh, anekantvaj or even this, you know, ekam sat vipra bhuta vadanti kind of idea says ekam sat. There is a truth. you know the anekantvad is often shown through the, yeah yeah anekantvad is often shown through the analogy the metaphor of an elephant right the blind man of hindustan the poem that was later immortalized the concept of jain anekantvad so you are blind i am blind everybody is blind we are touching something we feel it's a wall we feel it's something else but there is an elephant the elephant is real so the so the, the way it is different from relativism is relativism says there is no truth there is no but we are saying there might be an absolute truth there probably is is it that we humans individually or perhaps even collectively cannot know all of it so there is a difference there is that as you mentioned there is a fine line and i think we are not kind of relativists in a kind of post colonial post modernist sense and that's a very good point you brought up yeah no, and, and, and there is a humility which comes from that right when you accept that there is a bigger truth you know we no one can know all of it so everyone knows something but nobody knows everything yeah so so just one last line and then i want to go into the second half of your book so it's just a passing comment that so I, often people miss this difference that postmodernism says there are no meta narratives there is only many narratives while dharma says there are many narratives which are under the meta narrative so there is the meta so the difference between postmodernism and dharma would be that the dharma always says there is that meta but we are at the level of the mini when we go at the level of the meta we are all one that's where we say you know vasudeva kutumbakam is at the meta level at the level of the absolute we are all one but at the level of the material realm we are different we have our issues we can have, we can deal with them so so now i want to go into the next half from where you say from civilization to nation now this this word harsh and i'll start with you this 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 word is i think often abused often misunderstood often misrepresented uh, you know misrepresented uh like when you guys say civilization like i mean what does a civilization mean and because nowadays civilizational states are kind of looked at in a very pejorative way so when you guys were saying from a civilization to a nation because you start by saving saying who are we now that's a very tough question to answer if you are an indian because we seem to be having a problem about defining who the hell we are so how how do you guys uh, start from on that question so i think kushal that's an excellent question so the way we see we actually write the various meanings of civilization one meaning is 
our universal civilization or an incipient universal civilization where we quote B.S. Naipaul. The other sense is civilization versus barbarism, right? That's one uh, another understanding. The way civilization we talk about mostly is, you know, something like Samuel Huntington's thesis. Uh, you don't have to fully buy into that thesis just to be very sure. But the idea is civilization is the largest unit of humanity, largest unit somehow of coherent humanity, which is short of all of humanity. So the largest coherent unit of humanity short of all of humanity. So I think that is that is how I would define that is how Rajiv and I would define civilization. So, so the West, for example, is a civilization. Now you can argue whether you know you want to include the Orthodox Church in it or not, Eastern Europe and all that. But the West is one entity. But clearly, uh, the West has United States and France, which are different nations in it, right? But it just happens in the case of India, where so you can argue about Nepal, Bhutan. But basically, in India, the nation and the civilization happen to be the same. Now, on your side, when you mention about going civilization, going to nation. So yes, of course, we are not a nation state in the European sense of the term. We are not a post-Westphalian kind of sense. We are, because an analogy of France would be like Punjab. Analogy of Spain would be like Kerala. Like an analogy of Germany would be Maharashtra. So these are the incipient units. But now we are going from a civilization, which we have been for thousands of years, to a nation, and hence the phrase nation building, because there is much more economic, social, geographical, physical mobility, social mobility within this country, uh, you know, English, um, some kind of mix of Hindi, English, and some of the languages, de facto the language of, I would say, the overwhelming people. Most people would understand some combination of Hindi and English in India, right? If not Hindi, some English. There is a clear sense of, I can today go get up and go to Coimbatore and live in Coimbatore in a very comfortable sense that I could not have, Raji could not have 20, 30 years ago, right? I mean, actually, People of uh, North India have been living in Tamil Nadu for a long time, but for even if I don't know Tamil, I'm slowly the learning. Part of it, yeah, the mobility part of it is is there the, because now I've, 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 I mean, partially because of technology, partially the change economics and everything. So there is a sense that this civilization has been there. It is converting into a nation through the instrumentality of this modern democratic state. So the reason why we're saying that is so important because everybody often you're right. I think you indirectly said everybody throws around these words without trying to kind of nail down the meaning of the exact words themselves. So civilization is nation through a state. Yeah, I'll just add to that, that yeah. uh, I think this is one of the most fundamental questions and it really tends to determine how you see India today. Uh, and the question is whether uh, somebody thinks India was created in 1947 or whether India has been an ongoing entity for Centuries and millennia. So, so, so a lot of people think that a lot of a lot of people think obviously that you know there was nothing before 1947. It was a manufactured sort of uh, ragtag number of uh, princely states and British-controlled territories that existed, and there was no cultural sort of unity and, in this geography. Uh, to add to what Rajiv has mentioned, that uh, the way he's uh, pithily absolutely said, you know, people who believe 1947 is when we started. People who believe we've been there for thousands of years. And there are a lot of people today who call themselves Nehruvian and Ambedkarites and who take a position that 1947 is when we started, even though Nehru and Ambedkar would have never said that at all. Their views were absolutely the opposite. So this is also a point we make in the book that, you know, people often say that the right, so-called right is trying to co-op the Ambedkar. Well, so-called left is you know, has tried to co-op Ambedkar, not just forget reading his Pakistan or partition and all those books about Islam and all that. 
even on the fundamental question is is india a pre existing continuing civilization ambedkar is very clear it is he said no other part of the world has this kind of amazing cultural unity we start this uh, one of the chapters with this quote of ambedkar saying indians are always fighting but that only shows that indians are a, <laughs> are people who fight a lot it doesn't show that indians are separate people so i, I you know i think that's very important uh, to understand no and, i think just we are like anybody anybody i think one of the best ways they kind of explained this uh, so this was i think an exchange in parliament between the west bengal uh, communist leader sonna chatterjee and uh, the late chatterjee's father no so sonna chatterjee acha uh, acha i think abhi uh, he had he had uh, told sushma saraj he said you know she, he said to her you know, what do you mean what do you mean india is cultural cultural sort of uh, nationalism and all this what does it mean so she replied to him saying that you know cultural nationalism and uh, in sort of this uh, idea is when when a bengali person names their son after a temple in gujarat so somnath obviously is the uh, renowned temple and uh, somnath chatterjee's father was nirmal nirmal chandra chatterjee who was the president of the hindu mahasabha uh, a very renowned leader from bengal and uh, i think after that exchange i don't think somnath chatterjee had anything to say <laughs> yeah so it's very interesting so you guys have uh, on page 43 you have a very interesting title you say confusing state and society rajiv so again see uh, i think socrates one thing i liked about socrates as a philosopher was he used to be very you know very peculiar and very finicky when it came to defining things so again these are very important words like state and society so what is a state and what is a society and how do we distinguish them and how do we mess things up then no so state is obviously uh, it's a continuing entity right which in a democracy uh, we have given the state certain powers the most important power is monopoly on violence uh, the responsibility to keep order that is the principle i would say uh, exclusive role of the state should be the exclusive role of the state and society is you know composed of individuals uh, it's composed not of groups but individuals is the point that we have tried to make in the book uh, whereas whereas i think the error in india the or rather the you can look you can call it an error you can call it a conspiracy uh the the problem has been that we in india have viewed those uh, uh members of society as parts of a group so so we have not seen them as individuals we have seen each individual as being part of some group or the other and mostly they are religious or uh, certain other identity groups they don't tend to be we as in we as in the state the state has been seeing them like that yeah yeah the state the state has been seeing individuals uh i we think wrongly as parts of uh, groups rather than as individuals yeah now now let's go into the <laughs> the fun part of the book which is uh, saving secularism from the secularists <laughs> i i love the title by the way i <laughs> have to give it to you guys and and this is the most contentious part when it comes to our political discourse right so i, I say when it comes to secularism okay there is the grand understanding that you know in the west secularism is irreligiosity which is dharma nirpekshta in in hindi or sanskrit the indian secularism as it is practiced today uh, i would not say it is dharma nirpekshta it is dharma sapekshta right it is positive attitudes towards religion 
Now, at a personal level, I think it's a pathetic idea. But that that's my 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 personal view, which is which obviously stems from not Nehru. People confuse it. I think it stems from Gandhi, and Gandhi's obsession with uh, you know promoting all religions are nice, all religions are same. I mean, we call. I think Rajiv Malhotra used a beautiful word. He called it the sameness disease. So Indian secularism by default suffers from the sameness disease. I, I agree. So, so you guys start the chapter by saying Nehru's soft bigotry of low expectations. So Harsh, what was Nehru's soft bigotry of low expectations? So I, I think uh, I'll just quickly answer that before saying something else. So Nehru's soft bigotry of low expectations is, for example, a classic case is when he reformed the Hindu uh, court bills into like this a modern law. Our Hindu laws on marriage, inheritance, uh, and all that, he refused to do it for all Indians. You know? That was a golden chance because the most difficult part was to build consensus on Hindus within Hindu society. And if he had done that, just within a decade of partition, very easily he could have extended it by, he could have had a uniform civil code. And he didn't do it because he said, Muslims, ka hai, jab wo bolenge, tab karenge. you know, as if Muslim yeah, women don't talk them. He said, he, he basically othered them. And he yeah. said, let it come from them. Do not consider them to be themselves, right? So I think that that is a that is in a, way, in a way, Nehru said that you know I'm the prime minister of Hindus, is the way I see it. Implicitly, he said, right? Implicitly, yeah. he said. Yeah. But I think I think I don't think just to I think he mentioned something like I don't think in the West it secularism means dharma nirpeksh. I think it's just a separation of religion and state. Um, and for example, we uh, we say that in the book that uh, many BJP leaders have called secularism, or at least the kind of positive, genuine secularism they would like to see, again, not as Dharma Nirpeksh, but as Panth Nirpeksh. So they say, you know, as you rightly mentioned, there should be no sameness, disease, and all that. The idea is various religious paths should be seen equally. It may not mean irreligiosity. And even on Gandhi, I just want to push back a little. I'm not sure if Gandhi thought all religions were the same. He, his rhetoric was definitely part of that, uh, but you know he was he was very very clear. He always said, "I'm a very proud Hindu," and he understood when he said, "You know, Raghupati Raghav Raja Ram," you know, and uh, and he would try to put Islamic motives within that as well. He understood, but that went against orthodox Islamic understanding of the world. So in a way, he was also being very clever. Now he yeah. he, he failed. That's a different thing, uh, but I don't think he genuinely believed that all religions were the same. Uh, but yes, I'll leave it at that. Rajiv, do you want to add something on uh, Nehruvianism? Sorry. No, I mean, on actually, on Gandhi, that can be a whole sort of uh, sort of one hour, one and a half hour podcast onto itself, actually. It's a huge topic. Uh, I mean, it obviously started with Khilafat, uh, sort of bringing in, uh, you know, religion, sort of religious issues into politics in that manner. But let's leave that aside. Uh, I, I do think... Uh, Gandhiji's biggest contribution was mainstreaming, uh, mainstreaming the cause of independence, the cause of freedom. Uh, frankly, to his eternal credit, the fact is before he came onto the scene, uh, the whole freedom movement was mostly an elite movement, a very elite, you know, those who are British educated lawyers, you know, in their bridge groups and in other kinds of sort of uh, pastimes, they used to, on the side, just talk about it probably. It was never really a mass movement in the way Gandhi made it. Uh, so I think that's his great credit actually. And and whether whether it was him or whether it was Nehru, well, I think I think the uh, blame definitely goes to those who were leading the country after independence, 
so i would say it was to the post independence leaders starting with nehru who corrupted uh, what secularism actually is uh, it was a failing on his part for sure uh, but but i think the absurd degrees to which the successors of nehru the nehruvians uh, if we call them that the absurd degrees to which they have taken it i don't know if nehru would have done that is you know what i would offer and in that sense you know nehruvians and nehru definitely different yeah so on page 109 i, I want to read this line you guys have written so you start the chapter by saying rationalism needs to be rescued from india's rationalists just as secularism needs to be extracted from the grip of secularists so who are these rationalists rajiv well you know there are these uh, you know groups of activists uh, in i think mainly the most prominent one is probably in maharashtra and and it was it was so amusing to me when i came across what was happening there uh and then you know there was the tragic assassination of a couple of uh, rationalist activists and then you know then the whole movement took another turn i mean uh, this group of activists started lobbying for a national level what they call a anti superstition law uh and you know they want to criminalize people's beliefs they want to literally uh, you know turn people who think certain things into criminals now you know that is simply unacceptable in a liberal democracy uh and 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 what was really amusing was they and if you go into these details kushal you you really i don't know if you laugh or cry uh you know they they had proposals like let's create a committee and the committee will decide whether this is rational or not and who will be in the committee obviously the <laughs> the, the group of activists would be populating these committees so they want the power to sit in judgment on people's beliefs and what they are doing i mean frankly they want to criminalize certain things well you don't need a special law or a special kind of a police force or whatever to uh, check these practices whatever's there in the criminal code is enough to check those malpractices and then you know the just the moralizing the pontification you know they go into tangents like why are people spending money in weddings rice is wasted you know this is bad that is bad just basically trying to impose their own sort of uh, moral choices onto the rest of the world through the so through the issue of state power just exactly so that's a classic another case of confusion of state and society but just to add one aspect on these anti superstition activists they would never call islam or christianity to be superstitious right so they would say okay these are these great world religions they get grandfathered so to speak these low traditions or these new traditions or these new age babas or gurus they get criminalized so it's not consistent right so if they are brave they're foolish if they're not foolish they're not brave and i mean, i think i think that is the real problem that these laws had right you i mean agar aapka superstition ke khilaf case hai then at least be consistent you know and the country might still reject it or might accept it but they would say no 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 old established traditions they get grandfathered so then you're not against superstition you're against superstitious activities which you can you can basically bully you the aghoris for example you can say ki acha there are not many aghoris it's easy to kind of demonize them to unko ban kar do because you know it's not a large group so that is the kind of attitude which we thought was they're not even being consistent and that is what was uh, most disturbing about it no and the sections yeah. who are supporting these activists actually then then they then they go on and paint themselves at, as defenders of minority rights 
as defenders of liberal sort of ideas i mean in my view the whole thing is it's it's like a sham actually yeah it is a sham as someone who i don't know who who thinks he's rational i mean i find this whole uh, you know i think it's only in india we have this stupid thing called rationalist movement otherwise there is no, no there is no such thing as rationalist movements across anywhere in the world but this actually is a you know harsh this is i think this is a typical you know essential factor of the current indian state and uh, it goes into actually perfectly into the next part of your uh, you know chapter 3 which is the importance of free speech and let me you know paint the picture for you i mean obviously you and i or and even rajiv for that matter at least three of us are famously infamous for being you know very pro free speech when it, when it comes to most issues on twitter we've had our fair share of drama for that uh, but that is for another day but so here's the thing and this paternalistic attitude where you know you infantilize the population i hi mera bachcha aa ja mera bachcha baith ja idhar baith ja main tujhe batata hu teri life kaise jeeni and you know the, so the indian free speech motto and this is going to be a t-shirt i actually make one day is going to be you know i believe in uh, your right to speak as long as you're speaking what i want to hear now how and uh, and here harsh this is a problem not uniquely with the left this is an indian problem this is pan india left right up down uh, north east north west south jidhar jana jao everybody is the same when it comes to freedom of expression so how do we deal with this and what, so what so when you propose this you know free speech uh, proposal in the book so how how much were you thinking ki kitna pushback aayega so i'll i'll just partially disagree there i don't think it's just a pan india problem see i think the pro- it has been a problem of the indian elite they fail i'll tell you why let us say today in the united states of america their judicial or political elite gets together and bans what they think is a certain neo nazi movement okay we actually write about the brandenburg versus ohio case as the gold standard at least in non war areas right so let us say something is banned there immediately there will be some pushback saying you have not banned this islamist literature then somebody from the left will say you have not banned that far right so i don't i think it is wrong to blame the indian people here it is the indian elite who have been forming the new modern nation state who have failed here because the, what has happened is the it is competitive uh, communalism right the moment this issue gets out of hand people who say well intrinsically i don't mind free speech but usne they did not ban that so now i want this to be banned so and then the problem is this is a vicious cycle how do you enter this cycle how do you break it you have to just literally stop time at one moment or let go so i would not blame indian people because if the indian state has consistently shown itself to side on the side of censorship the mo- the moral hazard the wrong incentive is for any local political entrepreneur to get behind a cause pretend they are hurt get some media try to ban some movie or some artwork and then say well humne kuch karke dikhaya hamari community ke liye so i it, it is a failure of the indian elite and not the indian people i mean on free speech i'm very clear they should have led from the front and they have not once the once the genie is out you cannot blame the people for saying you know sorry woni wata why should i suffer this i also want this to be banned so I, i think the problem has to be uh, there has to be a political consensus at the highest levels that is what is missing and along with that we need state capacity which goes to chapter 4 and 5 you have to have 
ിസ്റ്റ് to defend you as an individual individual qua individual so i think that is the that is the biggest problem in india about free speech there is no elite political consensus and even if there is we don't have state capacity and both of them go together these things fair no, enough and, all right i would just add the kushal uh, you know we are in a country where some of the most renowned journalists are out there suing people for saying something right so that's the starting point i mean the whether is the politicians whether is the journalists journalists who should be the who are the part of the fourth estate who should, who should be the first to say that we want free speech i mean in fact journalists in our country have said that let a committee again the whole committee idea let a committee decide and of course who's going to be on the committee me and my friends will decide so they want basically power for themselves and then obviously then they can play this game that oh wait so you you are from this group so it, your your free speech is x you are from that group you can't have x you'll have x minus 100 whatever so then they play these games and there is no uniform standard and then that's why people get agitated that you know if that guy can say it or that woman can say it why can't i say it yeah but here's the thing right that i i would disagree with her i think indian people have a free speech problem too it's not just the indian state because it's not like when the indian state you know back, you know crushes free speech in its beautifully diverse diverse ways the one way i have figured out the diversity of india is by the different ways we you know destroy free speech in india matlab mere ko to malum bhi nahi tha aise aise karke bhi free speech ko destroy kiya ja sakta hai i mean the 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 novel ways we come up with uh, destruction of free speech in india and you know, people people actually agree with it all the time so i i would not give the people the free pass here arch no i i just want to quickly push back again very very quickly and say that of course the people right now are conditioned like that right because we are seeing things being banned left right and center and everybody is like well tumko kya lagta mujhe gussa nahi aata mujhe bhi gussa aata you know so that's a different thing but i'll tell you why i'll give you counter example the mf husain paintings of i think hindu gods and goddesses which got him into a lot of trouble later on if i'm not wrong he painted them in the 1970s or sometime much earlier than when the issue became the issue that it did the issue became that issue after shabano after the satanic verses got banned so there was a there was a rising hindu opinion in india that muslim sentiments uh, when they get hurt the state jumps in remember india was the first country in the world to ban satanic verses the book it's a, it's, it's not even a muslim majority country so i th- i think i think that is the real reason that then said acha agar aap ye ban ke by the way mf husain ne ye banaya tha उससे पहले सम पीपल मस्ट हैव बीन एंग्री बट इट नेवर गॉट पॉपुलर ट्रैक्शन सो आई वुड स्टिल मैटर डाविंची कोड राइट डाविंची कोड वाज नॉट बैंड इन इटली इट्स नॉट बैंड इट वाज बैंड इन इंडिया सो आई थिंक आई थिंक वंस यू डू हैव फ्री स्पीच एट द स्टेट लेवल आई दिस स्टेट विल से वी विल डिफेंड दिस आई थिंक विद इन 5 10 इयर्स इंडियन पीपल विल बी फाइन देयर इज नथिंग इंट्रेंसिकली इन आवर रिलीजन और कल्चर व्हिच सेस कि ये ब्लास्फेमी वाले को गला काटना है यू नो एट मोस्ट देयर माइट बी सम सोशल सैंक्शन देयर माइट बी सम एक्सकम्युनिकेशन 
आई एम नॉट सींग एवरीबडी इज लाइक कोई बात नहीं यार गले लग जाए ऐसा नहीं है देर माइट पीपल बट देर इज नो सेंस ऑफ वायलेंस इन आर ट्रेडिशन for things like blasphemy people say about cows and all that that's you know that's a different thing that's not blasphemy per se and even there you can de- debate and discuss so i i i would push back and say that if the state is responsible for defending free speech you would find indian people actually being okay with it in a few in a few years no and and moreover i would say it is the responsibility of the state right so this is one of those cases where you have to use the authority to use force in the defense of individual freedom and that's what the government of the day or the state the indian state needs to be doing yeah i agree with you i think the most beautiful narration of uh, the destruction of indian free speech is uh, you know in detail given in uh, tripur daman singh's book where he talks about how other than uh, of all the people shama prasad mukherjee nobody else not even ambedkar not even raja ji not even patel none of our heroes who we all like even i like them but the point is nehru ko to alag baat hai he was the one who destroyed free speech in india but even patel ambedkar raja ji they just you know capitulated in the in the pressure uh, that was exerted by nehru and there was only one person who was standing there like a wall and he was like galat kar rahe ho galat kar rahe ho no and his words were kushal india should have unrestricted absolute free speech yeah. like sweden yeah. that is what he had said and yeah, just to add one point because you mentioned you've uh, tripurdaman singh's excellent book which i recommend to all viewers uh, if you have to choose only one book then read our book but if you have to choose <laughs> <laughs> then read the uh, read that book as well that book is so excellent because it reminds us the first amendment was passed the first constitutional amendment in india was passed before the first elections so the the constituent assembly you know passes it says we are now a republic Uh, 26 January 1950 become a republic. Our elections are happening in 1952. Between this time, we have the First Amendment. So you did not did not have the popular legitimacy of universal adult franchise, and they could have waited at least for the first election results. It may not have been very different, probably, but it shows the callousness with which the original Constitution was destroyed. So we say Ambedkar's Constitution, all of that, but it was actually Nehru's Constitution before the first election happened because he all he fundamentally changed. a lot of things the first amendment this was very fundamental right changing right right, right to expression uh, restrictions on uh, uh, expression and restrictions on property reasonable restrictions <laughs> so so two very very fundamental amendments actually in in, in uh, changes in that first amendment but by very, the way you know the story right that nehru hated the word reasonable too he was like restrictions dalo somebody was like chacha <laughs> bas kar de reasonable to dal de usme he was like theek hai theek hai reasonable dal do that that yeah. you know if you go back to press reports from that time we were in fact even quoted in the book uh, there was speculation that nehru was actually very intolerant towards how the press was covering him so he actually wanted to clamp down on that And 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 look at what the Nehruvians have been telling us for all these decades that Nehru was the paragon of free speech. Rani, what did that? What did that? Uh, Let us just write Sultanpuri. What did he write? Which which made uh, Nehruji very so, angry. So that was this. That was this couplet uh, written by the famous Urdu poet Majru Sultanpuri. Uh, you know, there was it was a very controversial thing at that time where India decided to join the Commonwealth. So Majru had written, "Commonwealth ka das si Nehru maard le saathi jaaye na paaye." So for that couplet. Or for that poem which he wrote, Nehru jailed this poet. 
Yeah, Nehru was awesome, wasn't he? So now let's get into profit is not a dirty word. Obviously, uh, more Nehru. Yeah, so I mean, we've done enough of Nehru. So isme actually, I'm going to change the rule of the podcast because I think somebody has asked a question on the live chat too. Somebody, uh, Reem has asked a question and I think it fits in perfectly because I want to talk about something you've written as the last part of this profit is not a dirty word, which is on page 178. You guys call it Atmanirbhar capitalism. Now, Reem has put the perfect question and I want both of you to take it up. And then obviously we'll go into the last part, which is decolonizing the state. But Reem says, so for Harsh and uh, Rajiv, on a scale of 1 to 10, right, uh, where uh, 10 being full free markets and 1 being Soviet Marxism, where is India ranking at the moment? That's the first question. So, Harsh, you can take that. And Rajiv, for you, if India is over-regulated, what will make our society government embrace a free market? And this is perfectly because I think this sums up your chapter. This question that Reem has asked both of them actually covers up a lot of your chapter. So, tell me, Harsh, where will so, you rank India? 1 to I 10. There's a friend, Reem, who's in Mumbai and he's asking very naughty questions. Isn't that <laughs> That's the favorite word in Mumbai these days. Uh, so and I, I, I hate to disappoint Reem, and I'm not ask, answering like a politician, but it's not a linear axis. It's a, it's, it's at least, it's at least an X Y axis, and I'll tell you why. And that actually gets very directly to Atmanirbhar capitalism, and more broadly the civilization state. So it's not free markets versus a state. Actually, what we, we write in the book is that the state is absolutely critical to have a functioning free market. It's just that the state must be a facilitator and must not be a player itself. But a modern, because he, and the very simple way to understand is, you know, according to some libertarians who are more anarchist libertarians, if you go by their theory or rather their theology, um, Somalia should be a utopia. Right? Somalia has no state. Nobody wants to live in Somalia, including Somalians. Right? So there is, there is a problem. Uh, whereas, you know, Sweden, many people say, oh, it's very socialist. Sweden has a very deep intervention state, but it also has very pro-business policies and actually its corporate tax is much lower compared to its individual taxes. So the state is very much required. Now, okay, that being said, what is Atmanirbhar capital? Atmanirbhar capitalism says domestically free market rapport, but can you leverage your size? You know, that's again, the civilization part comes in. Can you leverage your size to kind of jumpstart industrialization, which we miss so far uh, by pretending that we are the same size of Malaysia or Singapore? So how much can you have free markets domestically? How much you can have FDI liberalized? All of which Narendra Modi government is doing, which is all pro-free market, all good. But there's one difference. What happens is industries go in clusters. You know, people, and this is what Alexander Hamilton wrote in his first report on manufacturers when he was a treasury secretary and he had to write something up for George Washington. And George Washington said, I want some, what, what we now call infant industry argument to jumpstart our manufacturing, but especially for defense manufacturing, which again Narendra Modi is doing and something Raji follows very, very closely. And this is something that we understood that, okay, have infrastructure, have a financial system, have domestic free markets, but can you have time-bound moderate protectionism for five or 10 years to, and then people say, well, if we do this, we try the license raj Including Raghuram Rajan just said it, just to show how shallow his understanding either understanding is or he's now doing political uh, kind of signaling. So the idea is in 1950s and 60s, there's no, and 70s, we famously thwart Coca-Cola, if you remember that. 
we have now fdi we have infrastructure there was no domestic the license raj meant if you are a bidla company within india and want to expand capacity you have to go to delhi to get a license that is not the case anymore the only difference we are saying is you even allow all foreign companies to come to india but so long as they manufacture in india unko 5 10% ka benefit de do bas just a slight thing to jump over a slight hurdle to jump over and that is enough given that you have the monopsony power of 1.35 billion customers to force a lot of people something which for example a sri lanka cannot do by itself if sri lanka says i have 20 30% tariffs ford is saying chalo koi baat nahi main jata hu ford india mein bhi hai but ford ne mahindra ko join kar liya and building for for exports and domestic markets gm is in india building for export markets but not for the indian market right now but hyundai and suzuki are doing very well and people said acha wo toyota is complaining Andy Mukherjee wrote a column. Well, what, but the biggest company in India is is, is a is a Japanese company, Suzuki. It's 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 majority owned by the parent company in Japan. The second biggest, third biggest brands are Hyundai and Kia, both sister groups from South Korea. So when we are very much for free markets, but you have to have some rational industrial and trade policy in a tactical sense, but not in a strategic sense. Okay, so Rajiv, I'm going to repeat the question for you. So, if India is over-regulated, what will make our society or government embrace a free market? <laughs> no, so I would say, the, see, the first, the first thing is realization, right? So, ultimately, uh, political leaders, uh, people who are in the government, whoever they are, wherever they are, whichever party they are from, uh, they will follow what voters want. Now, if there is an awareness among voters. for example an awareness of how taxpayer money is being wasted by state level public sector enterprises by central public sector enterprises it is literally being wasted tens of thousands of crores are being wasted so i think at the very first level awareness you know as the saying goes sunlight is the best disinfectant so if people know that this is where our money is going this is where you know public expenditure is going then you know, that that in itself triggers a thing that you know why are we doing this and you know then that kind of creates a case where you know on the one hand this is the whole challenge of reforms is those who oppose it are consolidated they are kind of a you know united special interest group and they are the ones who lose out from the reform and those who will benefit from reform are all dispersed and you know it is very easy to confuse and kind of confound this dispersed group by throwing out slogans by making allegations you know as we are seeing already with the farm bills which is i think a universally good thing obviously the implementation and the details there will matter a lot but i don't think any reasonable any uh, uh, sort of expert economist today is disputing that the decontrol of agriculture is not good for india so so i think awareness is the first step actually and and to that end that is one of the objectives that harsh and i had for the book that people need to understand this better as to why efficiency is important because see when once you have a slightly efficient sort of uh, government in that way you will have resources for the things that matter for for things that the state should do for example defense national security policing enforcement of contracts uh, providing kind of basic infrastructure like sanitation health public health which is such a huge issue we've experienced in the last 6 months uh, so so getting government to, to do the right things i think people need to look at what the government is doing and then say you know that why the hell are you running let's say a hotel or an airline or you know all the number of even state level psus which are existing today 
Yeah. So, okay. Now I want to do the last part of the book. And I think this is, this is a very important part because this is, uh, I don't know, this is something I call in my field. Uh, I, I think this word, again, this is another word that has been used a lot these days and it has been, uh, I think, misused again. And this, this one topic scares me a lot. So you guys call this chapter decolonizing the Indian state. Now, I am for decolonizing the Indian state. But once again, I always believe people need to be very clear as to what they mean when they say decolonize the Indian state. And let me put my thoughts out for you, Harsh and Rajiv. I'll start with you, Harsh. So when we say de we want to decolonize something, right? We want to say that there were a certain memes that had entered into our society via a colonizer, they changed our innate nature, right? Our, in, our chitti, chitti is the right word, chitti in Sanskrit or in Hindi. Our chitti uh, was changed by the colonizer. Now, what we need to do is they changed our chitti so much that when we look at ourselves today, we look at wearing their lenses. So what we need to do is we need to remove their lenses and look at ourselves with a fresh pair of lenses. And that is what we call decolonization. But what does happen in India under the garb of this, you know, word decolonization is in many cases, we have substituted one colonial lens and we have replaced it with a new colonial lens, albeit in the 1960s and the 70s, starting from, you know, postmodernism. And we have started using postcolonial theory and we are saying, oh, we are decolonizing our society. Oh, kaan se decolonize kar rahe ho aap, sir? Aapne kya kiya? Aapne purana Abrahamism nikal diya. Aur aapne purane Abrahamism ko nae Abrahamism se replace kiya hai. So I'm not saying you guys are talking about it in, in the book. Obviously, you guys have charted out a very clear path. But Harsh, how do we deal with this dangerous problem? Because I know you guys have given the solutions in the book. So I just wanted to lay out the problem. And then now, Harsh, you first. And then, Rajiv, I want you to add to it too. So for chapter five, we were not so much into this airy-fairy political philosophy, metaphysics realm. We literally meant that there was a British colonial state, which to some extent claimed to be uh, similar to the Mughal state, although there was the, Maharashtra, uh, the Maratha realm for almost a century in the middle. Um, and the idea was this colonial state is top-down. So this is more about economic administration and governance. What is it in top-down? The district collector, which is we still use the word collector for, collector. The, uh, for the DM. The idea of the collector was wo local tax. Why tax? Because this is your 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 good ka hafta. It's a colonial state, na? So you have colonial state. Just eat up to Akukushan. So, so what we did is once we became free, we slowly actually got rid of the agricultural taxes. The collector name has remained, but and but now it's replaced by a noblesse oblige. So now all the schemes come top bottom. Money now collector is actually the distributor now. So there is a collector who's now called the collector, but now he's a distributor. But there is no local actual administrator. And what I mean by that, because there's no local taxes outside of the urban areas, there's hardly any local taxes. So you have a panchayat, you panchayat a panchayat, you have a panchayat, you have a BDO officer. Hai. This, I've, since I worked in uh, districts of Eastern Rajasthan, Karoli, Dholpur, Bharatpur, and spent a lot of time with these collectors trying to get something as basic as maps of villages, 
and the stories i have about those those great days so I, I, the idea is why there is no sense of for example if you go to the us you have a suburb you have a school district the school district may people are paying property taxes the school is being administered even those who don't have their kids go to that school are very concerned about that school being good because that good schools attract good parents attract good property buyers get good property taxes you know so in uh, one of the dartmouth economists calls it the home voter hypothesis so there's a clear local incentive for good governance whereas in india everything is top down why just villages even in cities you know you, you, you can live in beautiful private apartment complexes uske bahar nikalti public area mein kachra pada hua hai you don't know who to call your roads are bad there are potholes every year mumbai the financial capital of the country gets flooded nobody solved the issue for years whatever be the issues real issues so the issue is who do i call even in a city there is one mayor who runs who is not a very powerful mayor like we have in the west or even as subhashchandra bose was for calcutta in the 1920s if i'm not wrong you know so there is no sense of local governance in india it is very 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 top down so that kind of swaraj which you know kind of arvind kejriwal hijacked that idea and he's not really done anything about that in delhi for uh, six years or how many years he's been in power so i think that decolonizing in had a very specific notion in this particular chapter 5 what you are saying is absolutely correct in a larger sense that we've replaced a certain colonial narrative with a post colonial narrative we've learned these fancy words about homo poco edward said and so on and so forth but we we have we not done a real purva paksha of narrative so so what your point is absolutely valid but in this chapter we were literally saying can we have a responsive state and not a state which we literally built on the british uh, civil service structure no and just to add to that so rajiv yeah yeah so yeah you know where does this come from so i would say partially you know the you know the, the education system in the country for example uh you know the elites of the country come from an education system which is not of the country in many ways it is not of the country in in uh, most cases actually uh it was very true until recently india's elites were all uh educated abroad also uh so that bias came in i'm not saying education abroad is a bad thing uh but but that tilt and that bias came in where uh, much of the elite was not exposed to what india is or to what indian history is and 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 uh then if you look at the branches of government you look at the judiciary you look at the executive you look at the legislature and you look at the bureaucracy so uh, i would i would argue that the legislature obviously directly directly elected by the people has probably been the most connected to the people in many senses right so these are these are our mlas our mps who come from the people who enter sort of the assemblies and parliament and so on they tend to be the most connected and then uh, you look at the bureaucracy well that too is through a competitive exam which has all kinds of problems but by and large i would say it's a reasonably uh, sort of merit based exam reasonably merit based despite its flaws and everything and then you look at the judiciary and the executive executive we all know it was for the longest time in the history of 75 years probably 55 years uh you know the sort of anglicized uh, elite of the congress party in fact most recently even controlled by european uh has been has uh, ran the country right so uh, uh that was the state of the executive 
I think uh, the rise of Narendra Modi has kind of shattered all of that. Uh, here is a person, you know, who's probably lived in every district in the country. Uh, you know, the kind of experience he has of India. Uh, probably no other prime minister. Maybe Atal ji, Atal Bihari Vajpayee ji had it, and maybe Shastri ji had it. Uh, but but if you if you look at Nehru, he went to elite British boarding schools, went to uh, Cambridge. I mean, he, uh, you know, he, he's 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 an old Harrowian. If you know what Harrow is, Harrow is like the most elite British school, and then this man becomes the prime minister. And yes, he's very connected. Yes, he's you know very well aware of Indian history. He's written some excellent books on it, uh, on India. But nevertheless, that Anglicization is real. We can't deny that. Uh, so so I think that aspect of executive too. being kind of deracinated almost in a sense if i have, if i were to use a very strong word and then lastly the judiciary obviously which we've ex- expansively talked about in the book which yeah. frankly for a long time has become a self perpetuating kind of uh almost almost nepotistic sort of uh, you know cabal of sorts yeah. uh, uh it has all kinds of problems in how uh, you know the the appointment system works like the judges appoint themselves probably india is the only country which has a system like that yeah. uh, so so you know if i had to summarize you know in a in a few words what the book is about uh, and what the change that is coming in india is india is a country that is escaping in a sense from its elites and and you often you often find that kind of if you if you follow certain types of journalists and uh, tv broadcasters they almost almost complain ki kahan gaye wo din ek zamana tha jab hamari chalti thi और अब देखो अब तो कोई भी आके टीवी चैनल खोल रहा है जिसकी लिनियज नहीं है कोई भी आके प्राइम मिनिस्टर बन गया हमारा एक्सेस खत्म हो गया यू नो दोस काइंड ऑफ लैमेंटेशन आर गोइंग ऑन इन लाइक पावरफुल इंस्टीट्यूशन इन द कंट्री सो सो इन दैट सेंस इन दैट सेंस इंडिया इंडिया रिमेन्ड अट ऑफ अंट कॉलोनाइज एंटिटी इवन दो वी बिकेम इंडिपेंडेंट बिकॉज ऑफ द वाइस लाइक ग्रुप ऑफ यू नो द पीपल हु managed to i would say even i would even use the word hijack some of these institutions yeah i agree uh, you you've actually titled that uh, part of the chapter beautifully you guys call it who will judge the judges right if i yeah. remember the book correctly uh, yeah so you guys call it that okay so let me take a few questions now so harsh i'll start with you so shri hari has a question actually for both of you but i'll ask you guys one question each so Harsh, do you think the current Indian government uh, can assert our civilizational values as much as, or has asserted our civilizational values as much as you would like it to happen? Um, I think that's an excellent question by Shri Hari. Uh, to answer that, you obviously have to have in context what time frame and what expectations over that time frame. I think, given the time frame, given that this government has been elected and re-elected, and in the second year done. Some important steps, such as repealing Article 370, uh, which I think was a bit of a bear, and people thought, "Kya ho jayega? Hum wo karenge." And obviously, uh, the Ram Mandir is now being built. That's judiciary, but the government had to obviously have some missions in judiciary. Uh, we are now on the path to universal, uh, uniform civil code with the triple talaq and triple talaq bill. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, there is a clear sense of assertion which was not there before, even in how we deal with China and Pakistan. uh not just that even 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 less notice aspects of our foreign policy diplomacy in terms of when we now go to mongolia or burma 
or Japan, we play the Buddhist angle much more um, than we did before. I mean, I'm not, by the way, I'm not, I'm not saying everything is new. I mean, Nehruji himself was a big fan of Buddhism in an abstract sense, which is why we have the, the chakra in the middle of a flag and so on and so forth. But we have kind of brought it up again, saying that if we have a Bodh Gaya circuit or if we have a Chardham circuit, domestic industrial that is not per se bad, wrong, or something to be embarrassed about. Right? So there is a, and then finally, the most obvious example of laying up the civilization identity is the CAA, the Civilizational, sorry, the uh, Citizenship Amendment Act, which said that, you know, again, India is not a post colonial entity, it's not post 1947. There was this larger Indian subcontinent. Uh, Hindus who remained in Pakistan and Bangladesh did not have any real choice to come to what is now India, unlike many Indian Muslims who did have a choice of going to Pakistan or staying on in India. And therefore, it is our moral duty to gradually try to help any of them who are facing persecution in these Islamist republics to be able to come to India. So there's a, there's a recognition of a civilizational context, which even Heruji again, to some extent recognized, he was kind of forced to by signing the Nehru Liyakat Pact. Uh, and when that was not, and because S.P. Mukherjee knew that it would not be properly implemented, I think he resigned on that pact. But nonetheless, that pact was signed. And I think, therefore, that on if you see in terms of Pakistani Hindus, if you see in terms of how we're dealing with China, the kind of Buddhist and Dharmic element in our diplomacy and foreign policy, I think given that it has been six years, this government has done a lot, um, it would be uh, sensible to judge this after 10 years have passed and then we can have a more sure answer one way or the other, but I think it's a very good start. Yeah, so Rajiv, uh, here's a question for you. Prasanna Venkateshana has asked, the state keeps recognizing people as a part of a group. Let's say caste is an example. For, according to him, the fundamental problem is laziness resulting in love for overgeneralization more than casteism. So what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I, I, I would say, you know, that calling it laziness would be kind of, you know, okay. giving a free pass, in a sense, to what is actually, I think, uh, a political strategy, in my opinion. Uh, I do think that, you know, many uh, parties benefit, and, and we talk about this in the book, that many parties benefit by dividing Hindus. Mm. So, so in fact, you know, uh, those who actually talk about caste are invested in the perpetuation of casteism and not mm. in the annihilation of caste. So, as Ambedkar yeah. had... We had, Ambedkar had said we had need we need to annihilate uh, casteism, uh, but but many political parties talk about caste and play it up uh, with the objective of actually dividing Hindu society, which is to their political advantage. Uh, and obviously, you know, on the other side, you have uh, other there are other parties who are trying to unite Hindus, probably for their own narrow narrow uh, sim similar similar kind of uh, political elect electoral agendas. But then, you know, we need to decide what is better. Do we want a society which is without caste and thus Hindus become more united? Or do we want a society riven with caste? And, you know, having all these kind of social integration issues, even almost, uh, you know, now uh, 75 years after independence. So I would yeah. not put this. I, I do think there is a political strategy at play, actually. 
Yeah, and to be very honest, and I'll just leave one line on the caste issue. I think uh, every time these lines usually come from people who are upper caste. I've never heard a lower caste person ever utter these lines. I'm just being very honest here. So, uh, okay, Harsh, um, this question is in Hindi, Harsh. But it's good. So, Bharat Ved Prakash asks, what do you think about the society of your mind? My English is fine, but I don't understand some words Google. So, Harsh, when you, were, uh, when you guys were writing, so, what do you think about your mind? It's a good question. I think it's a good question. I would like to say two things. One thing is that I work on a Okay. So this is this is hopefully not the end of it, and we want that at least in Hindi or maybe in other languages, at least in Hindi, this book is necessary. And if we leave the language angle demographically, we want that today's the people who are young, educated youth, read this book. Because, you know, I mean, I don't know, beyond the age of 14, 50, there are very few people who actually change their minds. Uh, mm-hmm. So, we, I mean, by the way, if you're 40 or 50 plus, please do buy the book. Don't get angry about the mark. <laughs> you are the exception who will change the mind. But I think that we are primarily looking at people who have their entire working lives ahead of themselves, who are just understanding what a immense privilege Indian citizenship is, and they want to contribute to this country for the coming decades. Uh, and then finally, yes, to some extent, it's also targeted to a small elite of uh, journalists, thought leaders, because, you know, if you influence them in a very selfish way, it kind of filters down in their writings, right? It kind of, it's a secondary impact on what an op-ed they are writing or some testing, some terms that you have brought up in the book catch up. So, uh, yes, you sometimes also have to kind of target the nerve center. But, but, Sankshep, I will say that in Hindi, there is a book and we are happy when someone takes a book. Yeah. <coughs> Rajiv, this question is for you. In our discussion, you had mentioned that point, I think it was on page 115 about the lavish wedding. So somebody has read your book and they have still come on this chat to ask you this question. So this one is for you, Rajiv. They're saying on page 115, you support lavish weddings. But don't you think those lavish weddings have destroyed many families who can't afford it? Rajiv, please answer. No, I mean, see, uh, this is where I think, you know, uh, do you think people have free will or not? Right? So those who don't want to have lavish residents don't have them. The, I don't think, and then, you know, but that, you know, I, I've heard this counter argument ki nahin, nahin, social pressure hai. there is a social pressure to do X, Y, and Z. Well, you know, uh, people have the, I believe people have the capacity to resist the pressure. Mm-hmm. You know, there are many things nowadays which people don't do because of you know, they, they still do or don't do, even though there is a social pressure. Uh, for example, uh, you know, a lot of people are choosing their own careers nowadays. There may be a social pressure from family or whatever, but people make the decisions. Uh, I, I do feel strongly, actually, that uh, the great Indian wedding is a really nice tradition. And uh, those who want to celebrate in a grand fashion are actually doing the economy. And lots of lots of, lots and lots of small business persons you know, uh, uh, service providers, a huge favor. Uh, in in fact, you know, I always joke with Harsh that it is a kind of a self-imposed wealth tax. Uh, so, so it is something I think we should encourage actually. I, I don't see anything wrong with it. 
Oh, yeah, I totally agree with you. And uh, you know, this question was asked by Sudha Prabhu. So Sudha ji, shadiyan karo. Please have lavish weddings. The more lavish the wedding, the more people will buy clothes. The more people will buy clothes, I will get business. Please do it. Think, think of, no, think of the fool, wala. Bhagwan ka dar rak, Sushil. Bhagwan ka dar rak. Serious note. I think it's a personal choice, right? People are going for very intimate weddings. That's becoming fashionable nowadays. So by all means. All right. So okay. Somebody has asked this last question, and then we'll end it. So one last question uh, from Anand Sridhar. Anand Sridhar says, I "Have a quirky question. Where do non-Indian ethnicity Hindus fit fit into our civilizational set? Very good question. Like people like Julia Roberts." Tulsi Gabbard uh, or from SEA. So Harsh, where do they fit? And Harsh, you have to unmute yourself. Yeah, uh, I I think that's an excellent question. Uh, the short answer is, we obviously don't have all the answers in this book or even otherwise. Uh, I I think I think the big idea is to do uh, more and more outreach. Uh, I think the chapter, the last part of the chapter, the last section of the last chapter uh, before the summary says is Durga, Lakshmi, and Saraswati. Mm-hmm. We quote thinker and we quote uh, modern thinkers like Vijay Kelkar and say, you know, a ten trillion dollar or twelve trillion dollar economy is the best foreign policy. Um, and I think, uh, you know, I have no doubt whatsoever that more and more non-ethnic, so to speak, Hindus will actually have, even right now, if I'm not wrong, uh, uh, Salma Hayek recently, just a couple of days ago, tweeted about her love for Saraswati or Lakshmi actually for Lakshmi. Yeah. Uh, at least that's understandably direct to the point. A love for Lakshmi Ji. So I thought it was. I think it'll happen just more and more. And I, I don't, I don't think in India and Hinduism should be conflated. I think Hinduism in that sense is bigger. I think there's yeah. a larger umbrella term called dharma. And if you go to the Uttarpara speech of uh, Aurobindo, he says that you know, for me now nationalism is the Sanatan dharma. But he says that if it was possible for Sanatana dharma to be destroyed. India would also be destroyed. So he says, and basically he says that means Sanatana Dharma cannot be destroyed. That if there, if you're going to use these two circles, the bigger circle is the Sanatana Dharma circle. However, he says that if the Dharma shrinks, India also shrinks. If India Dharma rises, India also rises. So the two are connected. But he's very clear in his mind that uh, Dharma cannot reduce in any way. See, remember that there is a certain idiom of being Indian, right? There is a culture, there is Sanskriti, which is related to Sanskrit and its derivatives. So that, that is the that is the very specific part of a language and a culture. But there is a metaphysical aspect of what dharma is, you know, what we discuss about pluralism, multiculturalism, but not in a state sense and a social sense. That I think is increasing the universal as people get richer, they rise of the Maslow's pyramid. You know, a lot of people are leaving the church in the West. And I have no doubt the same thing will happen in the so-called Islamic world in the next 50, 60 years. Which, which might be a controversial thesis for some, but I have no doubt it will happen there as well because you know a lot of these religions are very male-centric uh, and they have a very binary view, this or that. And what happens is the moment some doubt comes in, you end up leaving the religion, right? There is no spectrum like we have in Hindu dharma where, okay, you know, you're some, there is somebody who's a charvak, I am a Shiv Bhakt, Rajiv might be a Krishna Bhakt, and that's fine. You know, so you, like Kushal Mehra did not leave dharma simply because he calls himself a charvak. Whereas I am perfectly fine being a Shivha. So I think, you know, that kind of flexibility, that kind of plasticity, uh, Islam and Christianity do not have. So I think, I think uh, 
they play into the civilizational aspect but india will then become a subset of that larger civilization and i'll be very happy if that happens yeah no I, just to I, add to that actually i'll i'll also say that see ultimately uh, my view on this is it's a values based thing right so if there are certain types of ideas and values to subscribe to then you know almost anyone can you know become hindu or be hindu and and connected to that is that the the sum total is not 100% like it's not a zero zero sum game where either you are mm-hmm. this or you are that yeah so you can be both uh, yeah. which is which is something actually which you know conventionally in a kind of abrahamic world that doesn't add up uh but but if but if you are in the non abrahamic world if you if you sort of look at the kind of paganistic way you can be both and there's nothing wrong with that there's no there's no uh, sort of incongruity there yeah i just want to add one very interesting factoid that uh, i'm not saying joe rogan is a hindu but the new joe rogan studio has a big ganesha inside it so obviously for joe it's not a god <clears throat> yeah for joe it is just a cultural artifact which he finds very fascinating and it stems from joe rogan's uh, curiosity with psychedelics and ancient culture so that that's where joe rogan comes from but anyways i think it's time to wrap things up guys first of all uh, all of you who are going to be yeah please buy the book so if you go right now uh and look at the description of the podcast so it, it doesn't matter if you're looking at it right now you're listening to it later or if you're listening to the audio version i have put the link to buy the book in the description of the podcast go there buy this book and not only should you buy this book diwali is right around the corner i think this is a perfect diwali gift for your friends and family i think we need to inculcate this habit of gifting books to each other with mithai during diwali and i think this book would be a perfect gift for everyone and i'll leave you guys because the this book was essentially a socio political cultural book and uh, and i think there was one paragraph uh, you know and before i thank harshan rajiv for coming on the podcast i think they have summed it up perfectly about my sentiments and my emotions as to where india is going and this journey that we are all taking together so they have written much remains to be done and the modi government has seen withering criticism from several quarters one of those quarters is me but to borrow the illustrious political scientist samuel huntington's quip on america narendra modi is a disappointment only because he is also a hope i think that was a beautiful line that both of you guys writ, uh, have written in the book and i think that sums up a lot of what most of us think that the only hope from modi rahul gandhi se to zero hai anda hope hai humko humko usko to dekh kaise dar lagta hai bhag jao idhar se so our whole our anger stems from 15 minute de do 15 minute de do kushal nahi 5 minute bhi nahi de raha usko mere main so jaunga usko sunke i'm saying ek ovc 15 minute mangta hai ek rahul gandhi 15 minute mangta hai ha un dono ko aapas mein 15 minute de do wo log apna apna aapas mein nipat lenge so they, they they'll fix each other so uh, i guess that is that paragraph actually summed up uh, a lot of uh, you know a lot of what all of us who's kind of support bjp while at the same time who i would like to call who who don't go 
like anything goes kind of a bjp supporter matlab we have our moral center intact it is not like ki bjp kuch bhi karegi aur hum accept kar lenge we try to be critical of the bjp we 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 try and go out of our way and criticize them all the time so you know wonderful book guys i know i you know i i had the pleasure of reading an early draft of the book and uh, and uh, you know i was really looking forward to it uh you know uh, coming out with this book and and i'm really happy the way you guys have written i've actually read the the new one also so so there are significant changes which i'm very glad about so once again guys thanks a lot for coming on the podcast and looking forward to many more books from you thank you kushal thank you thank you All right, guys. Time to wrap things up. If you like the podcast, please subscribe, like, share, write your comments below. Once again, I'm trying to remind you: buy the book. It's in the the, the purchase. Uh, the link to purchase it is in the description of the podcast. If you like what I'm doing over here, please join the membership program on YouTube, or you can become a subscriber on Patreon. Until then, I will see you guys next time. Namaste. Take care. Goodbye.